You are now listening to Theology Applied, a podcast of Eternal City Church, where theology walks the pavement. Welcome to another episode of Theology Applied, and today we will be talking about justification. This is a legal declaration by God of the Christian's non-guilty status given on the basis of what Jesus accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection applied to the Christian by grace through faith. Theology Applied, and we are continuing in our series on soteriology. Just as a reminder, soteriology comes from soterios, one place that is found is Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing soterios, or salvation, for all people. Uh, Logi meaning science or a body of knowledge or the study of. And so this is the study of salvation through Jesus Christ. And we are making our way slowly through the Ordo Salutis or the order of salvation. Predestination, election, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. Today we're going to be talking about justification. We are excited about justification as Christians because... This is our positive righteousness in Christ and our sin being transferred to Jesus and he paying for it. Um, And so the Bible speaks a lot about this theological concept, this truth of justification that is ours in Christ. Uh, We're not going to flesh out the entire, uh, all we could say, but we're going to say enough that you will get it and prayerfully be able to make some application. So Romans 8 29 through 30, again, has an ordo salutis, and justification is explicit there. For those whom he foreknew, that he is God, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, last episode, we did repentance. In the previous episode, we did faith. In the previous episode to that, we did calling. And so you have calling and then Romans 8.30 jumps right to justification. And so in between calling and justification, we have both faith and repentance or repentance and faith. So after there is repentance turning from sin to God, faith, the result then is God justifies us. That's how it works in the order. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, has this helpful definition. He says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. He then says, a legal declaration concerning our relationship to God's laws stating that we are completely forgiven and no longer liable to punishment. And so justification is in the realm of legality. It's, it's legal language. It's forensic. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21, I think the most clear uh, justification passage in the New Testament, in my opinion, states this, for, for our sake... He, the he there is God, for our sake, he made him 
to be sin who knew no sin. So God the Father makes Jesus Christ on the cross to be sin, even though he was sinless. For our sake, and this is for us, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so there's this exchange of sin and righteousness at the cross and in justification. And so on the cross, Jesus is credited or is counted with our sin, and he is punished as if he lived our sinful lives. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin, who knew no sin. And then for us, so that in him, when we're in Christ, when we're united to him, we become the righteousness of God. And so the exchange in the positive is Jesus' righteousness comes to us. And we are seen as righteous in Christ with an alien righteousness, not a righteousness that we achieve, but rather a righteousness that we simply receive. And so this is the great exchange. Jesus gets counted as a sinner, credited on the cross with our sin, and he pays the price. We get counted righteous and we get credited the positive righteousness of Jesus. This is justification. Romans 4, 1 to 5 talks about this very clearly. And Paul picks up on an Old Testament example, the first Jew, if you will, Abraham. And he says, was Abraham justified by his law keeping, by his obedience, by his right living? Let's go back and look at Abraham and see how he was justified, how he was uh, declared righteous. Romans 4, 1 through 5. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Meaning what he did in his body, with his own actions, with his own effort. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about. He achieved it. It was his own doing that made him righteous before God, that he was justified by. And, and he says, no, not before God. Abraham did not have anything to boast about. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? And so Paul pulls out Genesis 15, verse 6, actually. And I love how Paul always goes to the Old Testament to ground his statements uh, he is thoroughly biblical, which we would expect if he's writing scripture to himself be biblical. But he goes to Genesis 15, 6 to ground where Abraham gets justification from. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God or trusted in God or had faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. You remember in verse 5, Genesis 15, 5, God tells Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Childless, old, unable to have children. He thinks his servant is going to be his heir. And he says, no, one from your own body is going to be your heir. And, and this is declared to Abraham by God and Abraham believes this promise of God. He has faith in God and his promise. And God credits him with righteousness for his faith. 
Uh, And so this is what Paul is picking up on. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So his argument here is, if Abraham was working for his righteousness, then he has something to boast about. But because all he did was trust or believe the promise of God, he has nothing to boast about because it's only received. No one can boast about gifts. And this is uh, by the way, but Paul speaks of this um, to the Corinthians. He says, what, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, how could you boast? In other words, if if we're receiving something, we can't now think we're the stuff because we can do this thing or we have this gift or we... No, you have it as a gift. All you did was receive it. You have no grounds to boast. In the same way, Abraham is justified by faith or just receiving the gift. And so he has nothing to boast about. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in, You could actually translate that, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So the believing, it is what it takes to receive justification. We have faith in Christ and what he accomplished by his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, his resurrection, Uh, We believe on him for the forgiveness of our sins. And not only do we get that forgiveness of sins, which Jesus paid for on the cross, but we get positively the righteousness of Jesus, his accomplished perfection given to us as a gift. And because of this payment of our sin, because of this positive righteousness given to us, God declares us right in his sight. He declares us righteous, though we are not righteous. And this is in the text. I don't know if you heard it, but in verse five, he says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You see, not only was Abraham not godly, but we ourselves are by no means godly. And so right in the text, they are righteous, but at the same time, they are unrighteous. They are right with God, but at the same time still sinning against God. And this is the beauty of justification. It's that God declares those who are unrighteous, righteous, because the righteousness is not ours. It's Christ's given to us as a gift. And because it's given to us, no grounds for boasting. Self-righteousness has no place for the, if you will, uh, justification conscious person. <laughs> Paul, again here quoting Genesis 15, 6, points to Abraham as his grounds for a New Testament justification. Okay, now in justifying us, God is not making us righteous. He's not pouring into us righteousness. Rather, he is counting us righteous. He's crediting us with righteousness that's not ours. This is called imputation. Impute means simply to credit in place of another. It's like your bank account is negative and not only does God bring it to zero, but he fills it up to the full. And that's what you have as far as righteousness is concerned. You did have a negative and you needed to pay 
the, the negative balance, but that's what Jesus paid on the cross. But the, the negative balance isn't just brought to zero. Rather, you have a full account, an unlimited supply of righteousness because it's Christ's righteousness given to you. This is what it means to impute or to credit. It's filled up in our account, but it's not ours. It's someone else's that is filling up our account, and it's Christ's. Okay, so it means God credits us with Jesus' positive keeping of the law. Now, this word counted here in, in uh, Romans 4, 4. Read it again. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This word counted is logizomai, and it means to count or to credit, to count or to credit. So the counting or the crediting of righteousness is what justification is all about. Now, the question I want to ask is, how could God consider us righteous when we are clearly not righteous? Any honest Christian will say, I am far from righteous. I mean, I don't know if there's a day that I achieve any kind of righteousness. Well, we have a hint or a clue here in Matthew 5, 17 to 20. In the Gospels, Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think I came to, to do away with the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. I've come to, ful to fulfill them or to fill them full. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. You see, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to accomplish the law, not disregard it, not throw it away, not say, ah, oh, just ignore that, not to sweep the unrighteousness or the not keeping of the law under the rug. Rather, he says, I have come to fulfill it. I have come to accomplish the law. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees in that day were in the minds of the people Jesus was speaking to, the most righteous. They were the ones who were meticulous in their ceremonial law keeping, in their dietary law keeping, in their calendar law keeping. Uh, they were so meticulous, they would strain their drink so they wouldn't eat or drink the smallest of an unclean animal. And Jesus says, You need better than that. The only way we can get better than that is Christ's given to us. He came to not just externally fulfill the law as the scribes and Pharisees were doing. In fact, Paul, as a Pharisee, says uh, in Philippians, according to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. So he would look at the externals of the law and he saw himself as righteous. He, he couldn't find anything he wasn't doing. But it's not just about the externals, it's about the internal loves and motivations and what drives you to keep the law. Are you doing it so you can boast about how fantastic you are, how righteous you are, and be able to look down on those who are sinners so that you're in your mind your righteousness puts you up top with lofty eyes that looks down on everyone else? Is it fear that motivates you so that you are afraid of God and so 
only fear keeps you uh, doing the right thing or not doing the wrong thing? See, the true motivation that Jesus gave us is love. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. This should be the motive for wanting to keep the law. And this certainly was Jesus' motive. So he came to fulfill or to accomplish the law, not just externally, but internally, out of a heart that loved God and loved his neighbor 100%. And so what we could say uh, in simplifying what Jesus did was he loved the Lord his God, God the Father, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength 100% of the time. He loved his neighbor as himself 100% of the time without fail, both in thought, word, deed, and heart motivation. That's what Jesus accomplished for us. Good news, that's what's given to us in justification. Now, in Matthew 3, 13 to 15, we have a picture of this happening. So you, you remember John the Baptist, Jesus, wild and crazy cousin, out baptizing in the Jordan and in the wilderness. Crowds of people are coming to him. He's a prophet. He's wearing uh, the gear of Elijah with the camel's hair and the leather belt. And so Jesus shows up for baptism. Matthew 3, 13 to 15 Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him. All right, I'm going to stop for a second. Picture this. John's baptizing in the Jordan River. John's baptism was specifically a baptism of repentance. He was calling for the nation to the nation of the Jews, the Israelites, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so his baptism was not New Testament, New Covenant baptism. It's different. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so those who would come to be baptized by him were saying, I'm a sinner. I need to be washed and cleansed of my sin, and I need to be made right with God. And so John would do this ritual act of baptizing. In addition, uh, the proselytes, uh, those who were Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish, they would have to go through this baptism rite, which uh, symbolized their old dying and coming into this new uh, life of Judaism. They were identifying with the Jewish people. They were dying to their old ways and old self. Well, in the same way, John the Baptist baptism was saying, you die to this old you, this old sinful person, and you come up alive and cleansed, and now you are, are righteous. His, he was saying, identify with your sin and repent. And so those who would be baptized by John were saying, yes, I'm a sinner and I want to repent and I want to turn to God. And so when Jesus shows up for this baptism, you could see why John's like, wait a minute, I, I am a sinner who needs to be baptized by you, the righteous one. But here you want me to baptize you, Jesus? And so listen what the answer of Jesus is. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You say, what a weird answer. Then John consented. What Jesus is saying is, I need to, John, identify with sinful people because that's what I came to do. I came to identify to such a degree that on the cross, I will be made sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So this is a picture of Jesus going into 
the sinful, watery representation of, of what will kill him on the cross. And he's buried, if you will, in that sin. And it just covers him and swallows him up. And in a symbolic way, he identifies with the sin and is killed by it. And then he comes up out of the water, resurrected, new. It's a picture of what's going to happen when Jesus does accomplish our justification. He is identifying with our sin in the baptism of John. And that's why he says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so he is, he is identifying with our sin and ultimately he will identify with our sin on the cross and God will count him or credit him with our sin. But this is a picture of it. So in a sense, this is beautiful. Jesus looks out at all these broken, busted, sinful people coming out to be baptized by John. And it's as if he like puts his arm around them all and says, these are my people. I identify with them, us. We are his people, the sinners who know they're sinners, who say, I am in need of a savior. He identifies with us to such a degree. He doesn't just come and hang out with us. He takes our place and takes on our sin and is punished as if he sinned all our sins. This is the crediting or the imputing of our sin to Christ. And it was pictured right at the baptism of Jesus by John. Now, we don't only need Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross to pay for our sins. We do need that. But we also need his positive righteousness or his active obedience to be given to us. So we need to have a righteousness before God in order to be right with him legally. And so how, how is God going to accomplish this? Well, he is going to give us the righteousness of Christ, the fulfillment of the law, and the uh, perfect obedience of Jesus. Now, there is an interesting Old Testament picture of this in Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. This is about Joshua, the high priest, standing in the courtroom of heaven, and you have Satan, the accuser. Literally, that's what the word means. When, when we read this text, you'll see Satan is translated in the ESV, but the actual text means accuser or adversary in the Hebrew. Um, that's why one of the names of Satan is accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's, he's the adversary of the righteous. Uh, so he is, he is the, the prosecution, and you have the angel of the Lord, who is often Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, also standing beside Joshua, the defendant, uh, who, is, who is on trial. And then you have the judge, the father, God, sitting in the bench, and it's a court session. This is what we break in on. Then he showed me, this is Zechariah 3, 1 to 5. Then he showed me, the he, uh, the me here is, is Zechariah, who's writing this account. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, or the accuser or adversary, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. <laughs> I love it. Is not this a brand? Brand means a burning stick. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? This Joshua the high priest? Is he not a, a fiery brand because of his sin? 
it's a picture of punishment, of judgment. Fire is always a picture of judgment in the scriptures. That's why hell is pictured with flames of torment. And it, fire is a judgment. It's a, um, that's what's going on here. So is he not a, a brand plucked from judgment is what he's saying. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So he's got all this dirt all over him. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. There's the taking away of the sin, the removing of the dirty clothes. This is the cross. Jesus on the cross takes away our sin. He is the scapegoat. He is the sacrifice of atonement. I have taken away your filth, Joshua. I have taken away your iniquity from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, meaning clean clothes. I will give you clean clothes to replace your dirty clothes. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. This is the Middle East, uh, you know, hot desert sun, um, thousands and thousands of years ago. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And so you can see here, this is an Old Testament picture of the Christian's justification that would be accomplished by Christ. And you have here Satan, you have the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Jesus, and you have Joshua with his sinful life, his dirty clothes. And the picture is his clothes are taken off and then the clean clothes are given to him. Clean vestments, clothing, and a clean turban or a, a head garment. Now, this is an Old Testament picture of justification. Uh, Joshua didn't do anything to earn this. It was simply the declaration of Jesus here, the angel of the Lord, who said, look, just take his cl- dirty clothes off and give him clean clothes. And now he's right. And so for us, this is a picture our sin is washed, our, our dirty clothes are taken off, and we are given the cleansed, clean righteousness of Christ. Our righteousness is not ours. <laughs> it's Christ's. Now, we'll get to sanctification later. Okay, We're not talking about sanctification right now. We're talking about justification. And in justification, the righteousness is not ours. It's Christ's. His clean clothes become ours. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our state pre-Christ was Joshua. We were dirty. We were filthy. We were guilty before God, before his throne of justice. And we get the positive righteousness of Christ, his perfect life. And now, as it's been said, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And it's also just as if I'd always obeyed. That's justification. Just as if I'd always obeyed because we have the righteousness of Christ, the clean clothes of Jesus. So four things for application. We're going to wrap this episode up. Number one, rest in your justification. (laughs) You don't have to freak out and stress over your indwelling sin as Romans 7 calls it. He says, There's nothing good that lives in me, that is, in my flesh. 
But we don't just have flesh anymore. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit. We have the spirit. We learned that in the regeneration episode. But in our flesh, we still sin. In our sinful nature that dwells with us, the sin that lives in us, it still manifests and we do commit sins against God. But we have the righteousness of Christ. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so when you sin, you simply confess God will forgive you, he will cleanse you, and you remind yourself of your justification. I am righteous in Christ. I am not righteous because of what I can accomplish, uh, because of what I have done. No, it's only Christ's righteousness that is acceptable to God. And so your life will be sinful. Now, in sanctification, your sinful life will change and you will be transformed slowly. But when you sin, you confess your sin, and you rest in your justification that is not accomplished by you, that it's accomplished by Christ. You have everything in Jesus. Number two, you now have peace with God through your justification. So you might think, I need to do or not do certain things in order to have peace with God. Now, to be sure, if you're living in willful disobedience and habitual sin, you will not have realized existential peace with God. You will feel guilt and you should feel guilt. But in the gospel, in Christ, in justification, your sins are wiped away. As far as the east is from the west, he removes them from us. And the positive righteousness of Christ is ours. And so Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God now. God is not at war with you. God is not opposed to you. God is for you in Christ. He is not against you. He is for you in Christ. Rest in your peace that you have with God. You once did have enmity between you and God, right? The the flesh is nothing but hostile to God, but now you're at peace with him through faith because of justification. Number three, don't use your justification as an excuse to sin. Don't think, well, I have the positive righteousness of Christ, and I mean, 2,000 years ago, he already paid for all my sins, so it really doesn't matter. In fact, Paul addresses this in Romans 6, 1-2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? If, if justification is just received and not achieved, I mean, then shouldn't we just not worry about sin and sin it up. (laughs) And he says, no. Are we to continue that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's the question. If you died to sin, how can you live for it or in it anymore? That's dead to me is what you should remind yourself of. We'll get to that in sanctification. But quick application. Don't use your justification as an excuse to sin. Don't. Number four, don't try to be (laughs) self-righteous. Don't try to achieve some kind of goodness on your own because what that will inevitably produce is pride and pride is a terrible sin to God. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it's the sin. It's the sin uh, that is the chief of sins because all others flow out of it. 
And so don't be self-righteous. Rather, confess openly with others and with God that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a Savior. Your justification, your positive righteousness in Christ and His the imputing of your sin to him on the cross allows you to be free and open about your sin, to confess it freely to God and to others. You don't have to pretend to God or to others that you're more righteous than you are because you now are not justified. You're not made right with God. You're not declared to be right because of what you can accomplish in your goodness. You can't. And so because of that, you can not try to be self-righteous. You don't have to prop yourself up and make yourself look better than you are. Rather, you can talk about yourself in reality. Talk about the real state of your being. If you're in sin, talk about it with other people, especially with God, because in that, you get victory over it. When you hide it and try to pretend you're better than you are, that's when you get into big trouble. And so a quick number four application, don't try to be self-righteous. Other people can see it, you can't, but the, the win is that you confess your sins and bring them out into the open. Remember that God already knows your sinful state. You're not fooling him. And so because he knows, he's already made provision for you in Christ for that forgiveness of that very sin. Uh, we can confess that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and we bring nothing to God and accept faith, which is trust, which is just receiving of the forgiveness and of the righteousness of Christ. See you next episode.